hopefully that'll get up here in a minute. Uh, I want to begin with what could be an urban legend. You know, it's one of those kinds of stories that gets retold and told, and the person who's doing the telling tells it differently. But here's how it goes. There is a well-known atheist scientist in England, and he's discussing in a public lecture on astronomy. So he's talking about describing how, you know, the Earth orbits the sun, and the, the sun orbits whatever, and it's all science-y. And then at the end, there's this old lady. She stands up and she says to this young man, what you have told us is complete rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant port. And the scientist gives her a very, you know, superior knowing smile and then replies, uh, but what is the tortoise stand? And then what does she respond with? For those of you who know the story, it's tortoises all the way down. It's tortoises all the way down. And this is the example of what it means to talk about something that in philosophy is called the infinite regress. And it's kind of like this idea that the thing that's supporting your statement is assumed and can't really prove the thing that your statement is supporting. And really what it boils down to is all of our foundations. If you push far enough and if you ask enough questions, at the end of the day, the foundation that your life sits on cannot really be proven. Not really. At the end of the day, all of us, though hopefully your understanding of the world is not turtles all the way down, but every one of us in here is building our life on something that if they ask enough questions, you're, you're believing by faith. So even our, our very rational scientists in this particular story, even our very rational scientists, so even our very rational scientist is building all of his life on what? For those of you who are new, I teach high school, so this is actual. Feel free to respond. What's the scientist building all of his understanding on? Facts and reason. But if you ask him, what's the reason for your reason? That gets to be pretty tricky, right? Because he's like, I trust reason. Give me a reason for why you trust reason. You ask the lady, what's her life built on? Turtles. Can you give me a reason for the turtles? Nope. Turtles all the way down. And now we turn that same set of questions and we ask ourselves as Christians. Christian? What's your foundation on? And for the Christian, what's the answer? It's Christ, and it's Christ all the way down to every level of our lives. And it, again, we, we sometimes have this, this thought that it's like Christians are building their lives on faith and other people build their lives on reason. But really, at the end of the day, all of us are going to build our lives on faith, faith in something. And for the Christian, the answer is we're building our lives on the faith of Christ, that he is the center of everything. It goes all the way back down to him. And really, he's going to be the anchor for our hope. And so in Hebrews, it talks about Christ being the anchor of our hope. And in a world that is very, very confusing sometimes, and again, I don't want to ever say that the world around us is all an illusion or it's not real. The challenge is, what's more real than the world around you? And the author of Hebrews would say, it's a confidence in who Christ is, anchor for your soul. He is the one who is going to provide meaning in life and provide a foundation in life when everything around you is shaky. So in this particular picture, it's not that water isn't dense. It's just the anchor is more dense. It's more, not real, it's reality is denser, it's more. And that's how Christ is going to be for us. And a lot of people look at Christianity and they think it's a, it's a ball and chain that holds you back. But what is the difference between a ball and chain and an anchor. On one level, it's just perspective. 
If you see the anchor as holding you, then you thank the Lord for that anchor. But if you see Christianity as a ball and chain holding you back, then you're always going to be trying to kick again. And, you know, most of us find ourselves, you've been walking in the faith long enough on both sides of that, but it's the same anchor. Christ is the same weight holding us and asking us to put our complete confidence in him. Because without that anchor, we drift. And it's impossible not to drift in the world that we live in. And it always has been that. And so as we, as we think this through, Jesus was asked this question by a very religious person. In Mark chapter 12, this, this very educated person walked up to Jesus and said, what is the most basic important command? Which is basically, in using our model here, asking the most real person in the universe, God, what he says is most reality for us. And how does Jesus answer that question? What's the most important command? Love the Lord your God with? And in Mark, it's four, right? So Mark changes it all up on us, you know. The original in the Old Testament is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus adds this trait, and that's what we're going to talk about today. He adds mind to that category. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, mental, your mental capacity. And, you know, there's a sermon behind each of those. But what does it mean to love God with all your mind? And Jesus is going to basically say to love God with all of your mind is to allow Jesus to be your anchor, to let his truth, knowledge, and reality settle all the way through your thinking to every part of life. And uh, this, this can get a little bit tricky, you know, depending on where you live and your, your mental capacity. Some of us are very philosophical. We like to think those kinds of things. Others of us are more emotional. You know, we feel we, we're intuitive. This is going to be basically hopefully helpful for all of us because our minds are something. And so Jesus is going to, is going to challenge this person to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. What does it mean to live with our mind? And so this is where we're going to jump into first, or sorry, Colossians chapter, chapter one and two. I'm going to read verses one through, or 15 through 20 of chapter one. And what I want to challenge you to do, these are some pretty famous verses out of Colossians. I want you to try to pretend like you've never heard them before, and this is the first thing you've been told about Okay, so you're, you're living in Colossae, and this is one of the first descriptive phrases explaining who Jesus is, okay? So like, let go of your Christmas understanding and the baby in the manger, even the cross for a moment. And here's what, here's what I want you to think about. Just listen to these words. This is your first interaction with who is Jesus. First 15, chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness well in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is, for the Colossian church, their introduction to It is incredibly high picture of Christ. He is the maker of all things, and all things hold together by him. 
he is the fullness of God. There's nothing that's made that wasn't by him. Okay? And, and what Paul wants to do is he wants to show you who is this Jesus. Because the Colossians are going to have to deal with something called the Colossian heresy. Now, we don't know what the Colossian heresy involved. And on one level, I think that's awesome. You know, how many of you are the types that like to have the detail filled in? You know, so you read 2 Corinthians and Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that he wrestled with and asked God to take away the thorn in the flesh. How many of you are the type who are like, I really want to know what that thorn was? He doesn't tell you what the thorn was, does he? Because what can you do with that text? Plug your own life into that and be like, this is still true for me. The Colossian heresy is very similar. Now, obviously, the Colossian church knew exactly what he was talking about. But we, 2,000 years later, are reading this and we're like, I have no idea exactly what this Colossian heresy is called. But here's what the truth is. It doesn't matter what the heresy. You could take the heresy, modern, ancient, and you can plug it into this text because Paul's answer is not to refute each part of the Colossian heresy, but to do what? To hold Christ up high and say, you can take any false teaching that you would hear or any teaching in general, and what can you do? Plug it in, and Christ will be the gauge of its truthfulness or falsehood. So we don't know what this heresy was, but here's the answer. Jesus is the answer. And knowing him and having a complete, as much as we can, a complete understanding of him will give us the opportunity to wrestle and to understand the truth. Because we do know that this particular heresy came through the mind. Now, not all heresy does, right? There are certain kinds of false teaching that would come through your feeling, through your heart, through relationship. But the Colossian heresy dealt very much with the mind. And this is, this is the only book in the entire Bible where Paul is going to mention philosophy. He'll talk about philosophers throughout the Bible. This is the only place where philosophy is mentioned. Because this particular heresy came through philosophy. And so he's going to unpack that. So again, we don't know how the heresy came to the church. We don't know if it came passively or actively. But we do know it came through the mind. So I want you to think for a second about all the different messages you hear throughout the course of life and all the different places you hear those messages. So how many of you are talk radio people in the car? We've got a few of you. How many of you watch the news? How many of you are on Facebook? One of the more disturbing things if you've ever watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma, is so much of our news online alert, which they're not telling you the whole story, right? So... We're told messages all the time. And if we're not careful, it's going to move us. It's going to shift us because we can't live in the culture and not have the current move us around. Why is the anchor for our soul so incredibly important? Because without it, you don't know where you are. You don't know when you've drifted beyond where you thought you would be. So again, um, I tell the story to my high schoolers and I always laugh. Um, I went to... Puerto Rico when my brother-in-law got married in the middle of December. Very only time I've ever gone to a tropical country in the winter. I always end up going on mission trips, you know, go to the Dominican Republic in August because that makes more sense. But this particular case, we went in December, we're swimming in the ocean, and there was a very narrow beach, probably about as wide as these stairs, um, that were not covered in sea urchins. And so we went out on this little beach and we went swimming. And with before I knew it, I had coasted probably a quarter mile, you know, without noticing. And then I suddenly realized I was really tired. I needed to get to shore. And so I'm trying to swim back. And then I realized the beach that was, you know, clear of sea urchins 
was a quarter mile that way against the current and I was too tired to swim. And so I'm just like crawling over these sea urchins just to get out of the water. And I was pulling out, disturbing, but I was pulling out needles months, months. Because the current pushed me and I was unaware. Now, what happens in the physical realm happens in the, the mental and the spiritual realm too. We like to think that we stand on truth consistently, but we get shifted, we get moved. And if we do not have that anchor that we can look to and say, I know where the, the coast is, I know where reality is we will be moved. And so here's where Paul's going to address this particular heresy. So look at chapter two of Colossians. So chapter one, he lays out what's the answer. An exalted high view of Jesus is the answer. And now he's going to start to say, now what do you do with that? Chapter two, verse I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that we, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all things of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to notice what he says here. The most difficult statement for our culture believe that all things are hidden in Christ. Every part of our life is in Christ. Now we very, very easily break things up, right? Family life and work life. We have entertainment and we have our theology. We have our outside and our inside and we kind of keep things separate, right? We have our political and then our private and we, we kind of keep everything in its own little box. And what Paul is seeking to do here is to say all wisdom and the treasures of all knowledge is found in Christ. Now on one level, does that sound a little simplistic to some of us, right? That all things like science, philosophy, politics, economics, ballet, all find their origin and strength in Christ? And Paul says, yes, all of it, all areas of life find their origins and the standard by how we would even look at these things in Christ. So on one level, I love that it's so simple. Because that means there's an opportunity. Now, again, it's not as simple as that because here's the second part. Romans 1 would say that all of us, every single one of us, knows that there is a God. For those of you who know Romans 1, what do we do with that knowledge as a, as a species? We suppress the truth, we push it down, and what's the final outcome? We choose to believe a lie over truth. So, in theory... You could look anywhere in the universe and find Christ. But because of the sinfulness of the human heart, we blind ourselves to all revelation of God. And so it would seem as if everything would lead us. But if we're not careful, we can actually block ourselves in anything. So let's move this. We need a tether. Need a tether something to hold up. How many of you have ever flown a kite? Today would be a good day for it. Pretty windy. You can stand the cold. A kite would probably fly today. Uh, how many of you, when you were little, had the idea that it could like let go of the kite string? Kite. Free of its restriction. Just keep going up and up and up like a... How many of you ever... Did anyone ever actually let go of your kite string? What happens when you let go of the kite string? In a strange science thing, the kite crashes when you let it go. 
Uh, don't ask me the reason why that is, but you need the tether to hold you up. So when Paul says that all knowledge and wisdom is found in Christ, he's actually saying your freedom to live the best life possible is finding the right tether, the right anchor. And in fact, if you could do what so many people wish they could do, if you could cut all ties between you and God, you would not actually be freer, would you? You would actually end up bound in a tree. And we've all met people, I think, who've tried to cut all the ties in their life to anything that's related to God. And for a moment, maybe you go up. For a moment, right? The Bible says there is a pleasure to sin for a moment. What eventually takes over? The sin nature drags you down. And without that tether to Christ, we find ourselves in tree. We find ourselves broken. We find ourselves breaking others around us. And that is where we stand. So when Paul's making this command, this call to his He's saying, I haven't even, you know, he's saying, some of you I haven't even met, but here's where you need to stand, is that all knowledge and all wisdom, everything you need, bound up in the resurrected state. All of it. That there's no separation of this to this to this. And again, that's very simple, but it's also very, very helpful. And so we want to, to think about how does that work? Because again, we, we think about economics. I don't know about economics. Let's just throw that one out there. How would Christ be connected to economics? You think about it. You know, unless you have a solid thought about economics, how that relates to the knowledge of Christ. I only have two. I'm reading through Proverbs chapter 11. And one of the things he says is that a person who gives generously, what happens? They find joy and they have more to give. An economic principle. He also says a greedy person who holds on to their money, what happens? They lose it, right? A very strange thing. Uh, I'm not going to go into the ballot, but how would how would the appreciation of beauty and the arts be connected to Christ? Right? If you think about this, all things are connected. Now, here's how this could help us. Uh, if all knowledge leads back to Jesus, and that means almost any area that you want to look at, if you look at it close enough, it's going to take you down. So according to somebody, somebody, biggest living organism on planet earth in utah it is 106 square acres aspen tree right it is one parent tree that sends out roots and there's thousands thousands of aspen tree and they're genetically identical to the parent tree now if you took any one of those aspen trees and followed it to its roots and it follows its roots down to where the original would find you would make your way to that parent tree every so this is what this tells us. If you're into ballet, if you look at ballet from a Christian perspective, that provides an opportunity to talk about Christ through ballet. And if you're into politics or into science or into math, the scriptures integrate into all areas of life because who made math? Who's the source of science? Who created beauty as a concept? Christ. Which means you look at any one of these areas, you follow it. You will find yourself looking at Jesus, which means everything has an opportunity to strengthen our heart and provide a conversation up. All knowledge and the treasures of wisdom is found in the person of Christ. And that provides us, again, an anchor to talk to almost anything about anything because it's all, it's all his. It all comes from him. But, again, there's this challenge before us. The most difficult lie to see through 
Paul's going to go on to say, is this deceptive philosophy for this particular. So I'm going to read the next part of what, what Paul writes here. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I tell you this so that no one may deceive by fine-sounding argument. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So that just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthening in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here's our verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And here's where Paul says that for the, for the believer and the unbeliever alike, this is where we can kind of start to interact. So is there anything that an unbeliever can do? Right? And sometimes Christians can get a little bit like big for our britches, like no one can teach me anything, I'm not a Christian. But the Bible provides this opportunity that everybody is made in the image of Christ or made in the image of God, right? There's the image that's imprinted on us. Now, it's been broken. This in nature has cracked that. But can Oprah teach you something about relationships, even if she's not a Christian? Maybe, right? Can, a, can an atheistic psychologist teach you something about human nature in the Bible? Yes. Now, they're obviously going to be lacking that foundational truth about why we have a relationship and what the purpose of our mind is. But this means we can learn from anybody. And this, this uh, pluralistic elephant gets used a lot as an attack against religious people. I want to flip the picture a little bit, and I want us to think of it this way. All of us, again, because we're made in the image of God, have something in a sense of truth. That we have, right? And in this particular picture, if you're looking at the elephant's trunk and you're blind, what do you assume God is like? Maybe like a snake. It's like unwieldy and it can move around. And so you walk around saying God is like a snake. Or if you're the person who's looking at the tail, you're like, it's more like a broom and it's really weird. Or you're looking at the leg. God is like a tree trunk. And the, the, the argument goes that all these blind people are religious people looking at God and all of them understand something of God, but not the full picture. But what if the Christian comes along and says, you know what? All the blind people are all people. And it's not that the Christian sees the whole elephant from their own perspective. Why can the Christian say they know what God actually is? Is it because we're so smart? Because we know the truth sometimes on our own strength? What do we have that we base everything on? We believe something very weird. We believe the elephant communicated everything we need to know about to us. We have a picture of the elephant, not because Christians are so much, but because we believe the scriptures that tell us who the elephant is. What is God actually like? What does it mean to say that in Christ is all with? And what does it mean to live a wise life? We're told the elephant has communicated not only what we're supposed to be, but who he is as we move into that image. And so as we think about how to interact with the unbeliever, we want to be very careful not to like downplay the fact that they know things but we do want to be able to say there is a bigger picture to bring all these things together underneath one head. Ever thought about the word university? It's really the, the, the jamming together of two words, unity and diversity, bringing, bringing all these different colleges underneath of one thing. And that desire to be able to bring all things under one idea is ingrained within us. And that comes from God himself. And so we have this desire, but here's where the counter comes. 
the philosophical value. Paul uses philosophy here as shorthand. Here's what he means by that term. Any man-made idea or attempt to explain the world without God. That's how he's using it, right? Without God, explaining the world without God. And he basically says in verse 8 that there's two ways that all of us do this. Here's the first one. Tradition. Anyone? Yeah, we got at least one fiddler on the roof, right? The whole song where he's walking around singing about tradition. What are traditions? What are traditions? He says, we can build our lives off of tradition. What are some? In our culture, take a minute to think about that. What are some traditions within our culture? The average American, we don't think of ourselves as very traditional. But we do have traditions that are passed down from generation to generation. Just give me some. Thanksgiving tradition, love it, right? So the idea of being thankful in November is an American thing. And if you're Canadian, you're Thanksgiving. October a little earlier because it's like, you know, snow's nine months. That year up there is like the last time. Right? Uh, what else? Give me another American tradition of value. What do we value as Americans? That's a bit unique to us. That's not ingrained. Patriotism, right? Not all cultures are equally patriotic, but ours is pretty patriotic. And depending on which generation you're a part of, that may change. Yeah, patriotism is, is kind of taught, right? To stand and say, you know, stand and pledge, take our hats off when we're doing something patriotic. And we're thought about our economic system, how that works. We, val we rate how successful the year was based on the gross national product. Is that right, GDP? Do you understand that not all countries base their successful year on their GDP. Bhutan rates their successfulness on happiness. Here's what their, here's what their system is. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Theirs is the... Oh, now I can't. Oh, there it is. Bhutan gross national happiness. Yeah, go look it up. They have like a whole system to rate the successfulness of a year on how they define happiness. So we rate as the success of a year based on how much goods we produce. They base it on a whole different system. That's something that's passed down, that notion. So we have traditions. And here's what Paul is saying. Traditions are taught and ingrained. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And some of them are neutral. But if you've never compared those traditions to who Jesus says he is, then they're shaping you and you're unaware of it. Even a not-so-traditional culture like America has strong traditions passed down. So human tradition, he says, is one way to base your life on. He goes to the next one. This one's a little trickier. He says it's the basic principles of this world. If you have the ESV in your lap, it says something else. Can someone tell me what that says? So in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says you will base your life either on human traditions. The NIV says the basic principles of this world. What does the ESV say? The elemental spirits. That seems very different than basic principles of this world, doesn't it? But it's both are really saying the same thing. There is a way of life that you do not have to teach a person. That's wrong. Basically, there is a spiritual element to the world that is running against God, and we're born into that system. The basic principles are anything that you do not have to teach a kid, but you have to unteach a kid. So here we have this picture of an eye for an eye, right? an Old Testament command. We look at that and we're like, that's a little barbaric. But have you ever seen little kids? Do they stop at an eye for an eye if they're left unchecked? No, what do they want? Both of your eyes. 
for my eye. You don't have to teach a kid to get revenge. They have this ingrained sense of right and wrong, and they won't go for eye for eye. We, the Old Testament command was actually a God-given limitation to say, okay, so you lost a tooth, you are by law allowed to extract one tooth. Because if there was no law commanding people to only take one tooth, what happened? I'm punching all your teeth out. And then what happens to the person who had all his teeth punched out? Now it's like, you see how these revenge killings just grow and grow and grow. Basic principles of this world. Something you do not have to teach a child. Tradition, you have to pass on. And again, some traditions are good and some are bad. But a basic principle of the world, an elemental spiritual perspective, you don't have to teach. You have to unteach. You have to correct. And so when Paul writes, rather than on Christ, that last part of verse 8, he's like, we have these tools in our lives. Tradition, basic principles. And Paul says there is a third way that we have to have our eyes fixed. And that third way is to pull Christ into the center. Because if we don't pull Christ into the center, tradition or basic principles are going to drive all of our ways of Because what else are you going to lean on? If you can't trust what your parents said and you can't trust how you feel, what's left? And Paul's going to say, what's left is Christ if you surrender your life entirely. So he says, you must do this. You must put your, your life into the power of because otherwise, it's going to boil down to your own. And Bertrand Russell was famously asked, he was an atheist in England like 100 years ago. And they asked him, because he was very, very prolific against Christianity. He wrote an essay, which I recommend you read sometime. It says, why I'm not a Christian. Not super long, uh, but it's his like approach to why he's not a Christian. Some of it, I'm like, that's a good thought. Others, I'm like, wow, that didn't age. But something to think about. And so he was very, very anti-Christian, very vocally so. And someone asked him once, what happens if you stand before God someday and find out your entire philosophy was wrong? Here's what he responded with. I will answer to him, you didn't give me satisfactory proof of your That's his answer. I'm like, all right. But here's what that's do. That's basically saying, God, if you exist, what do you have to do? Come to my level, convince me on my terms, and then I'll obey Ever had a kid? This will happen. I will, a kid will come to you and say, I'll do what you want as long as it's something I want to do. And superficially, that seems good, right? It's like, they're obeying. But are they really? I'll obey you as long as you're telling me to go eat ice cream. And that's what Bertrand Russell was saying to God. I'll, I'll step down off the throne of my life if you give me all the reasons why I should. If you let me decide, that is not walking by faith. That is not walking. And is there going to be times that God's going to ask us, do not make that? All the time. All the time. Right? Just look at these little kids up here talking about children obey your parent. If you're older and you look back on that, does that verse make sense as an apparent? Yes. But when you were little, did it make sense? For some of us, less sense than for others. The Bible gives us these. It gives us the picture of Christ. And the command is, do you trust God and you obey him on his term? Can you say that Christ really is the embodiment of all wisdom and all knowledge? And when what I feel or what I think goes against what he says, 
I choose to go with what he says over what I think or over what I feel. And that is a difficult lie. Because what did Adam and Eve believe? What I see is most real. And what I see is a God who can't trust. Therefore, I'm going to make my decisions in that. And, and welcome to the human race post-fall. They ushered in a whole new way of looking at destroying. And so C.S. Lewis said, that I, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun rises. Not only because I can see the sun, but because by it, I see everything. The gospel gives us an opportunity to see everything. We can see suffering from a different perspective. 2022 has been a year of suffering for many. If Christ is the embodiment of all knowledge, look at suffering from his life. Evil in the world, we see it from his perspective, not our justice in the world, what we want to see, we see it from He's the way in which these And now we're going to get to the last one, the most difficult statement. Right? Because if we're not careful, we look at Colossians passages. Doesn't it seem like Christianity stands on like the best platform in which to interact with the world? And if you don't believe what I'm just telling you, you're kind of an idiot. And I've met a lot of Christians. That's their approach. You don't believe what I believe. You're stupid. I want to be careful here. Because all in Colossians is using this very philosophical set of arguments. He's talking about all these kinds of ideas of how to interact with that culture. But what I want to do now is go back to 1 Corinthians. And I just want you to notice how Paul in 1 Corinthians uses intelligence. Okay, look at verse 18. You have your Bible. Here's what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now look to chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You see what can subtly happen, why we as the church have to have our eyes fixed on Christ and not who's ever standing up here presenting? Because if our faith is only as strong as the preacher, then what happens when someone's smarter than the preacher comes along? Our faith is shaken. And here's where Paul says something very, very strange. He comes to the Corinthian church, and guess what the Corinthians value? philosophy, persuasive speaking, and wisdom. And he walks into this community and says, I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't come with persuasive speaking. I didn't come with any kind of intelligence. Because I don't want your understanding of Christ to be limited to my explanation of intelligence. I want it to be built on who is Christ and him crucified. And that is humbling for us. Because that means when we're interacting with people, it cannot be about the power of how clearly you communicate something. As good as that would be. It has to be on who Jesus says he is. And so we want to make sure that the foolishness of the Christ, the foolishness of the cross is what we stay focused on. As hard as that is. So again, just this challenge for us. Because when Paul shows up in Corinth in, in Acts chapter 18, you know where he was right before that? Chapter 17? He spent time in Athens. Right? The most intelligent place on planet Earth at that time. 
and he spoke on Mars Hill, which was the equivalent of like the highest level university debate place. He was in Athens, smartest place, discussing who Christ is on the highest philosophical terms. And he's like, I want to talk to you about the image of the unknown God that you have in this city. And then he uses, he uses their poets, he uses their rhetoric, he uses their approach to life, and then he turns all of it on one statement. And the person that you've been looking for is this Christ who resurrected from the dead. And as soon as he said that, what the Athenians do? Resurrection from the dead? You mean you want to live in this human body for all of eternity? Stupid. And they laughed at him. And so he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and either he had a change of perspective or he understood that the Corinthians wanted sound argument, wanted persuasive speaking. He's like, I'm not going to do that because as important as speaking the culture is, speaking the language of the culture, the values of the culture, it can't be built on the culture. It can't be built on those things, what we value as. He says it has to be built on Christ. And this requires humility because, last thing, Christian values are different. If you've grown up in the church, and I'm a church brat, I wasn't literally born in a church, but pretty close, and in church for my whole life, it can be very easy to look at people who don't believe that we do and be like, why? Why would you think that that makes sense? Why would you live your life that way? And it can come across very judge, very judgmental. And what I want us to think through is to remember this. To the world, much of the Christian value looks disjointed and like a pile of crap. Like, wait, Lee, you actually believe that? For those of you who didn't grow up in the church, who got saved later in life, here's the question for you. Do you remember what you thought of Christian values as a non-believer? Do you remember what you thought about Christian values as a non-believer? Can you be humble enough to remember that to an outsider looking at what we say, it makes no sense because they do not have the perspective. We need to be humble in how we interact with those who don't see because this picture looks like trash, but you know, you probably guess there's more to this picture than what you see. You take the light, shine it at it from a certain angle and look at it. And there's actually an image. There. There's actually art. There's actually something that makes sense. But to the person who's looking at it, go back, and can't see behind it. It looks like foolishness, according to Paul first Corinthians. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so here's where we want to operate. We want to operate in humility with those who think of our beliefs. Because only with Christ opening their eyes can they actually be the truth. And so as we interact with people, and I, I'm a big believer in having reasons for your faith, right? Peter tells his group, Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. How does that passage end? But do this with gentleness, humility. So I'm in no way saying don't have a reason, don't have an argument, don't have a discussion point. You know, I'm a Bible teacher to a bunch of high school kids. It's like I have to have reason pretty much everything or they won't listen. Even then they don't listen. But you don't want them at the end of the day to say you're right. You know what you want them to actually say at the end of the day of discussing scripture with you? That. What's the difference between your right? One is, you've argued them into a corner. Great for you. Are they going to change? 
When was the last time you changed your mind because someone argued their point better than you? You might have stopped talking because you knew you were going to win. But did you change your perspective? But if a person says, that's right, what do they recognize? A reality that's deep and simple. That's what we're shooting. That's what we're shooting. No gentleness. If there's no humility, then they're not going to see what we're at. Picture the value behind the value. So here we come to our the unsung corners. What are you anchored in? When you think about your life, what is the thing that goes all the way down for you? Is it success? Is it power? Is it recognition? Is it turtles? Is it reason? What is foundation under your foundation? And we're told through Scripture over and over again that Christ is the one. And I, I did a little bit of work as a, as a Mason's assistant, probably was a terrible but I worked with the Mason for about five years. And when you're setting like a foundation on something, or if you're making a deck or anything that involves stonework, the first and most difficult stone to set is the corner. Per brick, it takes more effort to put in that one than all the rest, but all the rest. Because if you get that cornerstone set right, all the other bricks fly up because everything's going to be built on that corner. You get that brick wrong, and sooner or later, that wall's falling down. And Paul's going to say, Christ must be the cornerstone of your life. Not the fourth brick up and 20 rows over. Christ has to be the center. He has to be the corner. And every single thing is going to be built on him. And if you look to Christ as your foundation, he says your life ultimately can be trusted. And he will take responsibility. And he will say, well done, good and faithful. Every area that you build on. But if your life is built on something else, Eventually, it's going to fail you, and things will fall down. Not in a moment. Hardly ever happens in a moment. It takes years of building a wall built off of a faulty cornerstone before the wall collapses, but it will eventually collapse. And we want to be people who live our lives before Christ, saying, you are my, you are my, you say go. And I want to walk in humility with those who would disagree with me, who would say, no, this other cornerstone is more helpful or more real. But we want to be able to say, no, at the end of the day, Christ is my course. Because we want people to be able to see our life live. Again, it's not going to be your wisdom and your argument. It's going to be your life that is going to convince And granted, again, having reason for the reason why you live your life the way you do is important. But your life and the fact that it's going to point always back to Jesus is going to be the thing that provides. And so, again, there's lots of great books out there on apologetics reasons for the hope that we have. Just remember, the world, it looks like foolishness. Till their eyes are to see Christ. At My hope for us is that we would have our eyes so fixed on Jesus that he would be our anchor, that when the culture shifts and moves, we can stay where he wants us to stay and to be able to do so. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I do thank you for our mind. You have given us something unique, maybe to humans, to be able to have a mind that can process, think, and interact. I just pray, Lord, that we would seek you all the days of our lives, that we would allow your authority to be our authority. And when we interact with the lost, I pray, Lord, you give us each inter- opportunity this week to interact with people who don't believe like we do. Help us, Lord, to be able to walk in humility, to 
to seek to live lives that are consistent with your truth and to be able to have a reason.